place today. Jesus said that his church is to be a house of prayer, a house of prayer for all nations. And one of the things you have to be, if you're going to be a house of prayer, one of the things you have to do is you have to pray. When you read the book of Acts, you find the early church gathering to pray together often. The church prayed to find out who should replace Judas as a disciple. The church was praying when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them in Acts chapter 2. The church devoted themselves to prayer at the end of Acts chapter 2. The apostles were headed to the temple to pray at the hour of prayer when Peter healed a lame man. The religious leaders threatened the apostles, told them to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And when they were released, they gathered the church together and started to pray. Now, that's just in the first four chapters that the church in the book of Acts is consistently gathering together and praying. The church gathering together to pray is a major theme in the book of Acts. So if our church is to be a house of prayer, as Jesus said, as the early church demonstrated, then we must have times where we gather together and pray. This is why we have a time of united prayer in every service that we have. This is why we have a specific prayer service on typically the first Wednesday of each month. And this is why we start our year with what we call a concert of prayer to have a time of united prayer. Now, one of the best books I've ever read on prayer gave a pattern for prayer based upon the acronym ACTS. You could call it the ACTS of prayer. And it's this, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. Now, we'll talk more about these in just a minute because this is what we're going to go through in our service. We're going to go through the acts of prayer together. Now, if you've never been a part of this service, what we'll do is we'll start and have a brief explanation of what particular act of prayer. We'll have a little bit of what the Bible says about it. And then we'll stop and we'll have a time of praying together, focusing on that particular act of prayer. After we have prayed together, Scott will come up. We will sing a song of worship that will go along with that particular act of prayer. And then we'll move on to the next one. So our first act of prayer is adoration. Adoration, according to uh, commentaries, is an attitude of worship characterized by love and reverence to God. When we worship God in prayer, we are recognizing that he and he alone is worthy of of our worship. Now many places in God's word show why God is worthy of our worship, why God alone is worthy of our worship. We're just going to look at one today. Isaiah 40 verse 15 through 17, it says, "And behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its animals enough for a burnt offering." All the nations are as nothing before him. They're regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Now, this passage has a lot to say about the greatness and the majesty of God. It says first that the nations of the world are nothing in comparison to God. Now, we've all heard the phrase likely, it's just a drop in the bucket. That comes from this verse. This is where it came from. Uh, This phrase is used to describe something small or insignificant. So imagine you lower a five-gallon bucket down into a well, and then you fill it full with water. As you're raising the bucket up, one singular drop falls out. You're not going to stress over that. It's a minor and an insignificant thing. One drop in five gallons of water is not that big of a deal. In the same way, if you look at all of the nations on the earth, now not just a nation, not just one nation, not just the worst nation, you take all of the nations of the world in all of their glory, all of them at their height, at whatever period of time was absolutely the best for them, and you took them in all of their glory and all that their splendor, and you compared them to God, they would be just as insignificant 
as a small drop of water falling out of a large bucket. This same idea is further illustrated by saying that the nations of the earth are like a speck of dust on the scales. This picture of scales used to weigh something out in the marketplace. The price of the item bought depends on how much it weighs. So if you want the scales to be accurate, you of course remove anything from the scales that could tip them and make it heavier than what it needs to be. So imagine you go to Walmart to buy some apples. And you're going to take that bag of apples and you lay it on the scales. You don't get before you get there, pull out a wipe and go through there and wipe off all the dust to make sure it's perfectly spotless before you do it. And if the person before you did that, you would likely think negative thoughts about them. Why? Because we know that a speck of dust on the scales is is insignificant in how much it weighs. In the same way, if you gathered all the nations of the world in all of their glory and compared them to God, they would not be any more weighty, any more significant than a speck of dust on the scales. He goes on and he says that the best sacrifices of the nations are inadequate to be offered to God. Right. He lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Now, Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for the burnt offering. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that the forests of Lebanon are basically the best, the most valuable forests. Anytime a a king of Israel really wanted to build something nice, he wanted the wood to come from Lebanon. The forests of Lebanon were the best trees in the land. Not only were the forests of Lebanon the best trees of the land, it had just abounded with wild animals. So the picture is being painted here. That if you took all of the all of the trees in the forests of Lebanon and every animal that was in there, and you took the trees and you made them into an altar, and you took every single animal and you offered them to God as a sacrifice, even that would not be worthy to declare his glory. Even that would fall far short of declaring how great and how awesome God is. There is nothing. If we were to search the earth to find anything worthy enough to offer to God to adequately display his greatness and his glory, we would search forever and we would find nothing. Nothing on this earth could be given to God and adequately demonstrate exactly how great he is. And then finally, it says all the nations are as nothing before him. They're regarded as less than nothing and meaningless. Now God really drives the point home here. The idea is relative importance. How important are all the nations of the earth in all of their glory in comparison to God? They're nothing. They're less than nothing. They're meaningless. They are worthless. If you take all the nations of the world all of their glory and all of their wealth and all of their splendor, and you compare them to God, they're nothing, less than nothing. They are just utterly meaningless. Great and powerful nations have come and great and powerful nations have gone. The Lord still stands. If the Lord tarries, the great and powerful nations of our day will fall and will pass from the scene. But God will still remain. This is a a good picture of the greatness of God. This is why we worship the Lord in prayer. Recognition of the greatness of God should motivate us to worship him as it did the psalmist. I will exalt you, my God and the king, my God, the king, and I will bless your name forever and ever. 
Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and highly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation will praise your works to another and will declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Think about that. I love that passage. But look at the the wording. Bless your name forever and ever. So it's not like a one-time thing. Because every day I will bless your name. And I will praise your name forever and ever. It is the psalmist recognizes that the greatness of God is unsearchable. You cannot understand the, the end of it. And so the psalmist meditates on the greatness and the glory of God. And because of that, God's praise is always on his lips. Later in the psalm, he talks about it basically just bursting out of him because of how great God is. This is what it is to adore the Lord. This is what it is to worship him in prayer. It is not to to rush into asking God to do the stuff that we are going to ask him to do. It is to spend time to just as much as as possible with us to adequately praise him, acknowledge his greatness, to recognize who it is that we're talking to. So we're going to have a time now, a prayer of adoration. Um, it's going to be in the group. So I'm going to ask Judy, would you stand and lead us in prayer, prayer of adoration?
The next act of prayer is confession. Confessing is admitting our sin and our failures to God. Now, the New Testament word, uh, the New Testament Greek word translated as confession, it comes from a Greek verb meaning to say the same thing or to be of the same mind. So that means when we confess our sins to God, we must say the same thing about our sins that God says about our sin. Now, this is, I think, a critical point for us to understand. To confess, to genuinely confess, we must say about our sin what God says about our sin. Now, regardless of of what our sin is, there are at least a few things God says. God says our sin is our fault. Right. This is a, a, a key thing for us to understand. We as people are always fully responsible for the sin we have committed. Now, that is in contrast to our culture that is constantly telling us it's not our fault. That for one reason or another, what we did wasn't actually our fault. And so when we confess our sin to God, we have to leave the cultural mindset at home. and We have to just go to God and say, I did it. And it was all my fault. I can't say, well, God, it was because of what my the way my parents raised me or, or God. It's it's you know, you saw how I treated Kelly. Well, if she hadn't acted like that, I wouldn't have acted like this. No, no. It's always all my fault when I sin. And it's always all your fault when you sin. And so if when we confess our sin to God, we say anything other than it is all our fault. We are not genuinely confessing our sin. And we also, God always says, our sin is serious. Right? All sin is serious. Again, this is different than our culture. Our culture teaches us to sort of compare and contrast. Right? Well, what I did was wrong, but what Joe did was more wrong. Therefore, God, I know what I did was bad, but you saw Joe. That was way worse. I don't, I'm not as bad. God doesn't say that. God says, my sin is every bit as serious as anyone else's sin. And so if I'm going to confess my sin to God, I must say my sin is serious. And then the third thing God says about all of our sin is it was committed against him. Now, this is, I think, the biggest part of it that we have to understand. All sin is ultimately committed against God. God is the lawgiver. He is the king over kings, the Lord over lords, and he is the one who has determined what's right and what's wrong. And any time any of us say, I don't like what you said is right, and I don't like what you said is wrong, and I'm going to do what I want to do, it is treason against the God of heaven. It is treason against the lawgiver. And so... We can't go to God and say, well, what we're doing, it really didn't hurt anybody. It's just us. That's not confessing. I can't say, well, I mean, you know, yeah, it hurt Brody's feelings, Lord, but it had nothing to do with you. Nope. No, no. All sin is ultimately against God, whether it affects anyone else or not, or whether someone is deeply affected by it or not. All sin is against God. So to confess our sins, we cannot go and say, you know, God, he made me do it. And it really wasn't that big of a deal anyway. To confess our sin, we have to own our sin as our fault, all our fault. We have to own our sin as serious 
and we have to own our sin is ultimately and completely against God. And if we are not willing to say those things about our sin, we are not confessing our sin. And there is a promise that we'll look at in a minute associated with confession that will not be ours if we are not genuinely confessing our sin, if we aren't saying the same thing about our sin that God says. Now, there are two broad categories of sin. There's sins of commission. This is something we understand. This is a knowing violation of God's word. Everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. That ultimately, sins of commission are doing what God has said not to do. God said, thou shalt not. We said, oh, I certainly shall. Sin of commission. But then there's sins of omission. This may not be something we think about often. But the Bible says, for the one who knows to do the right thing to do and does not do it for him, it is sin. Right? So... Sins of commission, God has said you shall not do it, and I do it anyway. Sins of omission, God has said you shall do it, and I choose not to do it. I don't do the right thing that I'm supposed to do. That also is sin. So those are the broad categories of sin that we deal with in our life. Now, genuine sin, genuine confession involves repentance. Repentance is a change of mind about God and sin resulting in a change of life. Repentance starts with acknowledging God is right and we're wrong. What is God right about? God is right. Our sin is our fault. God is right. Our sin is serious. And God is right. Our sin is against him. And we are wrong for ever thinking otherwise. And this repentance, it leads to a, a change of life. Now, the change of life is critical, right? God's word says that we are to produce fruit consistent with repentance. So there has to be a change of life or at least an attempt at a change of life. If we go to God and we confess our sin, Lord, I did it. It was all my fault. Gosh, it was so serious. And then we get up and go right back into our sin. We have not repented. Repentance leads us to be different. I can't confess sin. And I can't repent of sin. I'm ultimately going to get up and do again. Just jump up and know I'm going to do it. I mean, think about it on a human level. If I walked up to Brody and I just slugged him in the mouth as hard as I could. And then immediately said I was sorry. He would probably forgive me. But if he said, okay, I forgive you. And I slugged him in the mouth again. Said, oh, I'm sorry. It's not likely he'd forgive me again. But if he did and I slugged him a third time and said, oh, I'm sorry. At that point, he's going to start to believe I'm really not sorry from what I've done. Because all I'm going to do is stop long enough for him to say he forgives me. Then I'm going to do it again. That's what it's like when we go to God and say, oh, God, I'm sorry I've done this sin. And then we get up and go right back into it. It's the exact same principle. It's not repentance. If there's no change, if there's no attempt at turning from and getting out of the sin. Now, one of the reasons we we renounce the sin or we turn from the sin is because of the sorrow we feel over the sin committed. Sorrow that's according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. The sorrow of the world produces death. The sorrow God uses, the sorrow that it's talking about there, is not being sorry we got caught. It isn't being afraid God is going to punish us. It's just being sorry We have sinned against God. I've told this story probably a thousand times. But when I was a kid, mom and dad got me a BB gun. And I could go out and shoot birds. 
in the wilds of Pickett, Oklahoma, but I couldn't shoot my mom's mockingbird. So I went outside and I cocked my BB gun and there was a bird on the high line wire and I dropped to one knee with a dead aim, shot that sucker right in the head. And I went and picked it up, carried the dead bird in to show my parents, the mighty hunter that they had raised, to hear my mom's scream of horror that I had killed her mockingbird. And I assured her I did not kill her mockingbird. I would not kill her mockingbird. In my mind, I'm thinking, I think I've killed her mockingbird. I don't even know what a mockingbird looks like. So I'm arguing, telling her it's not a mockingbird. She gets a book called The Book of the Birds of Oklahoma. Who even has a book like that? Well, my mom does. She opens it up to mockingbirds, and they took a picture of the stupid bird I'm holding in my hand to put in the book. So I start crying. I'm sorry, Mama. I'm sorry I killed your bird. Oh, I'm so sorry I killed your mockingbird. I got out of trouble. She didn't take my BB gun away. I went right back outside, shot whatever bird I wanted to, only this time I never told them what a mighty hunter I was. I just buried the bird and moved on about my life. I wasn't sorry I'd killed her bird. I was sorry I was going to get in trouble. A lot of times when we go to God, we're sorry somebody found out what we've done. We're afraid that God's going to punish us for our sin. But we're not sorry for the sin committed. If we're not sorry for the sin committed, that is a worldly sin that produces death. The sorrow for sin that is without regret, it is the sorrow that is sorry we have sinned against a a good God against a a holy God. Now, there is with all of this, when we come to the end, there is a promise associated with confessing and repenting of our sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous so that he will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, let me say with this, I want to say this gently, but I want to say it clearly. This promise is only for those who legitimately confess. This promise is only for those who legitimately repent. Right? God cannot be fooled. You might could fool me and be sorry somebody found out about what you've done. You might could fool me and think it's not that big of a deal and it's really somebody else's fault and it wasn't against God because nobody got hurt anyway so it's not that big of a deal and I could forgive you. But God... Cannot be fooled. If you or I go to God with the attitude that says it's not that big of a deal. It's not really serious. It's not against him. Nobody got hurt. It's not really my fault. I'm not actually sorry for it. I just don't want God to break my legs or burn my house down or cause me to flunk a big test I've got coming up. God, forgive me, though. Forgive me. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'll never do it again. All the while we know we're going to get up and go right back into it. This isn't our promise. God does not give this promise to those who mouth words. God gives this promise to those who genuinely confess, those who genuinely repent. God knows our hearts, not just the words that we speak. He knows our thoughts, not just what comes out of our mouths. So there is no genuine confession. There is no forgiveness. There is no cleansing. Where there is no repentance, there is no forgiveness. There is no cleansing. So this is why it's important that we understand confession. This is why it's important that we understand repentance. Because without those, we stay in our sins. We don't experience the forgiveness, the cleansing, and all of the things that God does when we confess. So we want to have a time to confess our sins this morning to the Lord. And as we confess our sins, we want to pray the prayer of Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
Put me to the test and know my thoughts. See if there's any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting life. And if we are genuinely disciples of Christ, we want to be fully cleansed of all unrighteousness. So we say, God, show me anything in my life that's not of you. Anything in my life that's not the way you want it to be. And I will turn from it. So what I want to do is ask all that would to come to the altars to pray. And you pray as long as you need to. And when you're through, you go back and sit down. And when we're all seated, we will move on with our service. Okay, let's turn to page 488. And we'll sing all four verses. Page 488. <laughs> 
The next act of prayer is thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is simply what it sounds like. It is giving thanks to God for all he has done for us in our lives. The Bible has a lot to say about our need to be thankful. And really, I think if we're honest, all of it hard, right? So, for instance, let your lives overflow with thanksgiving for all he has done. And then in everything, give thanks for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. I mean, overflow with thanksgiving. And in everything, this is always God's will. How do we do this? I mean, how do we let our lives overflow with thanksgiving? How, how do we, in everything, in everything that happens in our lives, how do we give thanks? Because this is always God's will. Now, let me point out one thing. It says, in everything, give thanks, not for everything, give thanks. That is, I believe, a significant shift in the understanding. Some things in life are bad. And it is impossible to give thanks for those bad things. However, even in the middle of those bad things, we can give thanks. That's what he's saying. He's not saying... Give thanks for everything that happens in your life. He's saying no matter what happens in your life, in the midst of all of that, find a reason to be thankful because this is God's will in Christ Jesus. But still, even with that shift, how do we do that? When life is hard, things don't turn out the way that we had hoped. We've made bad choices that have caused problems. Other people have made bad choices that have affected us negatively. How do we let our lives overflow with thanksgiving? How do we, in the midst of that, give thanks? I think the key is what he says, for all he has done in Christ Jesus. The only way we'll ever be able to give thanks in every circumstance, the only way we'll ever be able to let our lives overflow with thanksgiving is if we focus On Jesus and all he has done for us. And to me, I always put this in the past, the present, and the future. But in the past, Jesus died for us. That is a, a past event. When we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrated his love for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, the circumstances of life... Don't change that. And the circumstances of life, whether it's the the things we have done that have caused the bad circumstances or the things other people have done that have caused the bad circumstances, do not change the fact that in the past, Jesus died for us. But even beyond Jesus has died for us in the past, if we are born again disciples of Christ, we can look at our lives and we can see that there are things in our past Christ has done. There are prayers he has answered. There are ways he has changed us. There are good gifts he has given us in the past. So sometimes in the midst of whatever's going on in our life, what we have to do is is look back. Look back at the death of Christ on our behalf and be thankful that Jesus has paid the penalty our sins have earned. Be thankful for the prayers he has answered. Man, I have a prayer journal that I bought the week before we moved out here. 
And it's broke up into different sections. And one section is just special needs prayer requests. And on the day I put it in the book, I write down in black ink the day. And then I write down the request. And then if God answers that prayer exactly the way I've prayed it, I put a red check mark and the date it was answered. And then on days when I can't see anything good and I can't think of anything good, I go back to that book and I'll count how many times in my life in the last 20 years God has answered prayers exactly the way I prayed them. And when I'm through, circumstances may not have changed, but I'm thankful that my God hears my prayers. I'm thankful that my God answers my prayers. And my life can overflow with thanksgiving in the middle of everything because of what Christ has done. So we look at the past, but we also look at the present. Again, if we're born again disciples of Jesus, we're promised he'll never leave us nor forsake us. We'll promise he's at work in our lives here and now. Right? He's the, the good shepherd that, that leads his sheep. He goes before us. He, he doesn't set up in heaven and say, go on, you can do it. I believe in you. He says, follow me. Come on, I'll, I'll lead the way and you just go with me. And if we, if we can look, we'll know he's there. I mean, sometimes it may just have to start with knowing the promise. The promise is he's there. And maybe we say, Jesus, I can't see how you're here, but I thank you. You've promised to be here and I believe it because that's what you said. But even beyond that, if if we can look beyond our circumstances, we can find ways he is currently at work in our lives. But he doesn't give up. He doesn't stop when the circumstances get bad. The problem is the circumstances cloud our view so that we don't see what he's doing. But if we can, if we can somehow make ourselves look above the clouds or look above the haze and look above the circumstances, we can see ways he's guiding us, people he sent to our lives, ways that he has helped us. In this middle of this circumstance, and we can pray, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you're doing. Not just what you have done, but what you are doing right now in the midst of my life. And then we look at the future. Jesus has promised to take us to be with him. And that's, that's a great promise. I think that's especially a great promise in the midst of hard circumstances. These circumstances won't last forever. There will come a time when this life is over and we'll go to be with Jesus in a place. There's no pain. There's no sorrow. There's no parting. There's no death. There's no sickness. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus, that this world isn't my hope. Man, aren't you? Don't you sometimes just look at what's going on in the world and just rejoice that your hope is more? That you don't look at the world and the politics and all of the stuff and and hope your hope is built in that. One day all of this is going to melt with a fervent heat and we will go to be with Him. Man, that doesn't change. Thank you, Jesus, for the hope that we have in that. But then even if we're we're really bold, we can take the promise that, that God has given to work all things together. For our good, for his glory. 
And we can speak in faith and say, I can't possibly imagine how this awful situation can be used for my good and your glory. But that's what you have promised. Thank you for what you're going to do in my life. And if we can think about the work of Jesus in the past, the present, the future, our lives can always Overflow with thanksgiving. We can give thanks in every circumstance for what Christ Jesus has done for us. Even just think about this. How many of God's blessings do we take for granted? Look at this. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation nor shifting shadow. Is there anything in your life that's good? A relationship? A friendship? Is there something you have that is good? Do you, do you have gifts and abilities? I mean, you know, God's word even says that, that God gives us the ability to, to acquire wealth, to build wealth in the Old Testament Deuteronomy. So what what skills, what gifts, what thought processes do we have that enable us to provide for our families and to to do that? Guess who that came from? Came from God. How often do we take things like our health for granted? How often do we take things like our families for granted? I mean, we have an abundance of goodness from God all around us. Now, the circumstances, again, can cloud it and make it foggy so it's hard to see, but it's always there. So to be thankful, that's what we have to do. To realize every good thing we have, it comes from Him. And just begin to thank Him. Thank Him for the family you were raised in. Thank Him for the country you live in so you can come to church freely. Thank Him for living in the days in which we live, in which the technology enables us all to have Bibles in our favorite translations. Thank Him. Man, the other day I was thinking, I've got like, on my iPad, I have like, like 1,300 books right here. Man, I mean, that is an amazing thing. I, I, have, I, have, access, I have access through this to theologians who are long dead. Physical books I can't even buy anymore. But I was able to download them for $1.50. I mean, that's, that's an amazing. So I can learn from guys like that have gone on. I mean, it, it's just an amazing. Thank you, Lord, for the, the technology available. That's a good gift of our good God. And we all have those sorts of things. So what I want to do now is I want to put you on the spot. I want to give you an opportunity if you want to stand and, and thank God. For something He has done for you in your life. In you, through you, or for you.
Anyone else? I thank God that we had three of our five children have horrible accidents and they should have died and God healed them without major problems, you know, for life for them. And I and it was God because nothing else could have done that. So I'm very thankful for that. Amen. Anyone else? I am thankful that I had such a strong Christian upbringing that every storm I've ever had, that God's been able to um, encourage me through it. And on the other side, I can help other people. Amen. Anyone else? I'm thankful that I was raised by Christian parents. Anyone else? for everything that God has brought me through. You don't know all of it, probably, but it's only drawn me closer to Him. And so I'm very thankful for that. Anyone else? I'll say before we go on that I am thankful for God's plan. When I was, I don't know, 18 to 20, I had a plan for my life when I left the army. Uh, and I can promise you it didn't involve being a pastor. Uh, it was something else entirely. And and yet, in so many things that I wanted God to do, He didn't do. And that just caused me to fail at that resulted in, in me being where I'm at today. And it's an amazing thing because the life I had planned, I thought would be the best life I could have imagined. The life God has given me is far better. You know, we Ephesians 3.20, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or imagine. Um, I've begun to realize these last couple of years that that's not just in his great power in the world, but the, the plans he has for us. I could never have, um, if I had asked God and he'd given me everything I wanted in my wildest dreams, I could not have imagined a life as good as the one he has given me. So I am very thankful for what he has done in my life. Any others before we have a prayer and go on? Stacy, I'm a very thankful individual for what I had. I met her accidentally, I guess. I'll put it that way. But if it wasn't for Lavina, I'm saying this for the best way I know how, I'd have probably done been buried the way I was going. So I quit my drinking, quit my everything except her coming to make a promise that she would help me out. So here we are today after a lot of years together and still love one another so much. And I don't know how to go about it other than just to keep my mouth shut. But if she needs me, she knows where I'm at always. I'm not hid from her or nothing. And I'm glad for this church too. Thank you. Brother Joe, would you stand and lead us in a prayer of thanksgiving?
Turn to page 170. We'll sing this through one time. Page act of, of prayer is supplication. Supplication is simply to ask God uh, for something that we need or something that we want him to do. The uh, truth we must remember is that prayer is about taking our needs to God and asking him to provide for us. That's very much something God wants to do. He wants us to cast all of our cares on him. He wants us to, to lay these needs at his feet. Uh, let me quickly turn to Matthew 7. That's page 738 if you have a pew Bible. Look at a familiar passage on prayer and just show you a few truths about prayer to encourage us in our prayer. Matthew 7 and, and verse 7 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks it will be opened. What person is there among you who when he asks the son of a loaf of bread will give him a stone? We ask him a fish, will he not give will he, he will not give him a snake, will he? So if you, despite being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now there's a lot of truths that we'll quickly cover in this about prayer. One is that we're to pray actively. 
But all of the words Jesus uses to describe prayer, ask, seek, and knock, they're, they're action words. Uh, prayer is, is an active process. It's not something passive. There also seems to be a, a natural progression from the least active to the most active. Right? There's asking, then there's looking or seeking, and then there's knocking and, and finding it. Right? All of these seem to raise, Jesus with this seems to be raising the issue of intensity. Right, if we half-heartedly pray once or twice a week, perhaps we shouldn't expect much from our prayer life. But if we pray actively, consistently, then perhaps we should expect great things from our prayer. We're to pray persistently. Right, depending on what translation you have, the idea of praying persistently may not be immediately evident. Uh, but if you're using a New Living Translation, you'll notice it says something like, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. What's being taught isn't merely ask, seek, knock once and then move on down the road. But it is to to seek and keep on seeking, to ask and keep on asking, to knock and keep on knocking uh, until we get an answer from Jesus in prayer. It is a picture of persistence. We pray and we pray and we pray until we get an answer. And then we're to pray expectantly. But notice the number of times Jesus tells us it will be given to you. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened for you. Everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks does find. The one who knocks, it will be opened. We should pray expecting answers from Jesus. And then we should pray confidently. The last part of the passage talks about the contrast between a human parent and God as our heavenly father. Right? As God is our Heavenly Father, we should be confident He wants what is best for us. And to make this point, Jesus compares an earthly father with a heavenly father. And He says that if there's there's really not a, a normal earthly parent, that if a starving child asked for a loaf of bread, they would give him a stone and say, there you go, buddy. If their starving child asked for a fish, they wouldn't give them a poisonous snake and say, hope for the best. No. If we, as humans who are flawed and failing, if, if we wouldn't do that, then our Heavenly Father wouldn't do that either. If we, as flawed, failing, earthly parents, want what is best for our kids, how much more does our perfect Heavenly Father want what's best for His children? Now, one thing I want to point out that I hope doesn't come across as a, a wet blanket or a, a faith killer and as great as this promise is, this is not a, a promise that God is always going to do exactly what we ask Him to do in prayer. God is not a genie who exists to meet our every wish. There are many promises in God's Word about prayer and God answering prayer, but none of them promise that God is always going to do exactly what we ask when we want it done the way we want it done. But it is a promise that we'll always get an answer. But what we have to understand is there is more than one answer to a prayer. We pray, God, would you do this? Sometimes God says yes, and he does exactly what we've asked him to do. That is a, a valid and a wonderful answer to prayer from God. And then sometimes we pray for God to do something and God's answer is not right now. Right? Not right now. The time isn't right at this moment for it, but keep praying. That, that's a valid answer from God. And then sometimes when we pray and say, God, would you do this? The answer is no. And, and that is a, a valid answer as well. 
Listen, do you have anyone in your life who always says yes to everything you ask all the time? Is there anyone in your life who who never says, not right now, I I don't have time at the moment, but give me a couple of days and I'll get back to you and I'll help you. I'll do what you're asking me to do. Do you have people in your life who when you ask to do something, they say, no, no, I, I can't, I'm just not able. Do you hate those people? Do you despise them? Do you think, well, they're not, they're obviously not real. Right? Obviously, there's not a, they're not a real person because they would have said yes all the time to everything I asked. No, we don't act that way with people. If a person we ask to help us says, not right now, we accept that as a valid response. If a person we know says, no, I'm not able to help you right now, or I'm not going to help you right now, we accept that as a valid response. If we would accept that with people, why would we not accept that with God? God is not a genie who exists to serve our every whim. God is the great and the awesome God of the Bible. He is the omniscient one who knows what is best. He is the one who knows the end from the beginning. Surely, if I could ask Brody to do something and accept a no from him, knowing that Brody is limited and flawed, surely the omniscient God can tell me no and I can say, well, that's not what I wanted. But okay, God. And it not turned me against him. Listen, if a no answer to our prayer has turned us against God, our view of God is wrong. God's not wrong. We see God as our genie. We see God as our servant. We don't see God as God and we're his servants. When we have a right view of God, we say as Job did, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Also, just the fact that God says no is a gift many times. I can think of many things I prayed and asked God to do a specific thing. And God told me no. And at the time, it felt like a such a betrayal. Heartbreaking. But God knew what I needed. God knew what was best. And, and looking back now, I am thankful for the nose. In fact, I could almost say I'm as thankful for the nose as I am for the yeses. Now, it wasn't at the time. It took time to get through. But I'm thankful for what God did in the times he told me no. Okay, what I want to do now. Brody, would you come help me real quick? Since I've punched you and called you names in the service today. Hand those out to people on this side. Yeah, okay, I want you to make three categories on your on your paper. One for those, one for personal needs. The personal needs are things you want God to do in you and through you and for you in this year. And then things for the church. Things you want God to do in, through, and for our church this year. We all have people in our lives that really either are lost or just are not as committed to their relationship with Christ as they should be. So I want you to to write down at least three um, for each one. 
We'll take a few minutes. We'll write those things down. What we'll do now is we're going to take time to pray over these particular needs. Uh, if you want to come to the altar to pray, you can. Pray where you are. Uh, pray when we're through praying. We'll move on with the service.
Ephesians 6.40.